0: You don't know how hard this is for me to do this in video. You have no idea. So give me a break if it's not so good. Okay. All right. So so this is the letter Um, June 9th, 2018. Parole Commission, Parole Commission and Examiners. I am writing this letter regarding the release of Artie Ray Dufour, registration number 09917086. He has a parole hearing on Monday, June 11th, 2018 at Hazleton United States Prison, or USP, in West Virginia. Mr. Dufour is unaware I am writing this letter, and, and that's true. He didn't know I was writing the letter. He did not give me the date of his hearing, and that's true. He never gave me the date of the hearing. <laughs> I am writing this because I feel it is the right thing to do. I could not submit it earlier as I only learned of the date of the hearing from my own research on Friday, June 8, 2018, when I called the commission. I did not know Mr. Dufer prior to September 2016. I learned of his history because of research I was undertaking for a documentary media project I'm working on. The research for this project was begun by my father, Richard L. Lyle, who was the managing editor at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer in Seattle. It is my belief, based on our research and my communication with Mr. Dufer since 2016, that Mr. Dufer should be released and that he has fully served his time. It is my opinion, and Mr. Dufer has never stated or shown he agrees with me, that those in the fraternity of law enforcement who appeared at his last hearing in May 2016 have their own unspoken motive for keeping Mr. Defer in prison that is not as they have stated and may be self-serving. It is not my interest to have them held accountable for their past wrongdoing, as I believe we are all Held accountable for our own by our own internal suffering. But I do believe Mr. Dufer has suffered enough for his crimes. And I believe Mr. Dufer's crimes would not have occurred had he not been targeted and trained as a young teen with violent training by someone who was formerly or possibly actively. Research supports this in US Special Forces. My research and that of my father shows that at least 33 other young male teens in poverty in the same area of California, at the same time as Mr. Dufer, were similarly targeted with this training. It involved training with military type weapons, that means assault, assault weapons, and strategies, so military strategies for how to carry out different types of uh, ways to kill people at or before the age of 15. It was done without adult consent. So his parents, or his mother did not give consent, and without congressional oversight. And these trainees were then used to carry out various kinds of activities, some involving counterinsurgency efforts in Latin America and Vietnam, like Carl, that's what Carl did, Carl Harp. And the, uh, the 32 other kids that were with Carl when he did that, when he, when he was doing that work some involving other activities regarding arms sales and exchanges, and that was mostly Artie's work from how he described it, how he wrote about it. This type of training on young minds, not fully formed, was damaging, and these kids had little choice but to agree to participate. Mr. Defer has shared his training with me in detail he also shared it with a psychiatrist after his arrest. Yet his own attorney, his own attorney, misrepresented it to the jury. And there's, um, I did, I have gotten access to his trial documents with, after a great effort, to be able to access them. The court tried to suck them back from the archives when they learned I was going to get them. And, um, but I got them. I got access to them, and then I got hit with a whole bunch of stuff personally in my life, uh, which I, I don't think is a coincidence either, um, which made it so I couldn't go back there. I mean, I could barely catch my breath from all the things that I got hit with. So um, the, uh, in, the, in the trial records, um, the psychiatrist had um, talked to him for quite a long time. I think it was uh, two, three different uh, interviews he did with him and, uh, and already talked about his training and that it was with this special forces person and his attorney, Mr. Wayne. When he had two attorneys, I guess one formally, one informally. Mr. Wayne's when he did his closing statement, and and in his opening statement, he they stated that Artie was was trained at Tribal Thumb, which is where he was living um, when he was out on escape, where he. Um, in California, in Humboldt County, which was like a, a radical group that was, uh, they were basically uh, related to the food co-ops, which is how I learned about him. He was, he was brought down there to train those people with military tactics. He did not learn. He did not get his training there. But it, see, see that made it, that made him seem worse. Oh, he was. He's a radical. He's a radical, that's where he got that radical training. That, no, he got the radical training from the, uh, from the special forces guy who targeted him at 14 and started the training you know, at 15 or so. And um, anyway, so, yet his own attorney misrepresented it to the jury. Had the jury understood what had happened to Artie, would they have convicted him in the same way? I don't think so. So, and it is similar to the training of these other former kids, and it it was. It amounts to a kind of torture, a psychological torture. Mr. Dufour and you can you can go on YouTube and listen to the YouTube video for the um, indelible project called The Hide or I read a little bit about it and you can judge for yourself. Mr. Defer prefers not to view it. Prefers not to view it this way. And this makes sense as he is a victim of it. And it is very hard for victims to believe they were harmed by their perpetrators, especially if this occurred at a young age. It is easier to believe it was something honorable and done with love. This is how it was presented to him. And then that's typical uh, psychological um, response to um, being experiencing trauma by a perpetrator at a young age. If there are people who've gone through things like that, you know that, right? I fully believe had Mr. Differ not been so targeted and trained, his crimes would never have occurred, and I, I honestly believe this. I truly believe this. He wouldn't have picked up an assault rifle, um... <laughs> He wouldn't have been trained with an assault, with assault rifles. He wouldn't have been trained with military strategies. And think about the other kids in recent shootings and what they know. And then look into their backgrounds and who trained them. And nobody wants you to know that. Just like they don't want you to know about Artie Defer. They want you to think it's like He's a bad person he was a radical no he he was a kid. He was a kid in poverty and so were those other kids those other shooters a lot of them. Look at the um, beltway sniper the, the kid that's still alive the one who actually held the gun. look who he was trained by. The responsibility for this training is that of the US military and agencies which oversaw this type of targeting and training of young males in poverty in the 1960s in California. So this is the early training, see? This is the beginning stages of it. Similarly, other victims of this targeting and training were often the named shooters in public crimes. In at least one case, the trainee was not the shooter but was used as the name of the shooter and sentenced wrongly for the deaths while the real shooter went free. And in that case, I'm talking about Carl um, Carl Harp. He he wasn't the shooter, but he was sentenced for uh, 95 years. The real shooters have never been identified, as far as I know. When he tried to write about his experience, he was murdered in prison, and we know this I saw the pictures. This occurred in 1981. Mr. DeFer survived his training, but because of the circumstances of it, he saw the world as a war zone. And you you can't really blame him for that. He was not different than any soldier with PTSD trying to live in a civilian world. He was exploited By those who trained him and used for their own ends. His first crime occurred soon after his training while he was still involved in activities created by his trainer, a highly specialized and revered soldier from special forces. This man gave him large amounts of cash, drugs, an apartment, and a 23-year-old girlfriend. He, he was underage. This was negatively influential for an underage kid in poverty. And Mr. Duffer expresses strong regrets about this crime. And um, he hardly remembers the crime because of the drugs he was um, under the influence of when when that t- crime occurred. And he was like, during that period of that crime, he was right in the midst of that engaging and doing work for that trainer. So um, It's a horrible crime, but So were, so were all these shootings recently, horrible crimes, right? His second crime for which he has served this sentence occurred while he was out on escape but there is information to support that he was still engaging in activities designed by his trainer and overseen by those acting under the color of the U.S. military and other agencies. So he went out and escaped from um, Duell Vocational Institute DVI, which is like a kid's vocational, uh, which is a kid's um, California Youth Authority um, prison and um, it's a really violent place. So he, he was out on escape during that period. He tried to escape twice. And there was, um, there was a, a lot of people wanted to escape <laughs> from there for their own safety. <coughs> Mr. Dufer was able to travel across borders with <coughs> We've had a deer by here lately, so um, it's kind of cool. Um, I hope it's the deer. (laughs) Mr. Duffer was able to travel across borders with ease to Spain, to France, and to Canada while he was out on escape. A wanted criminal can travel across borders to Spain, to France, and Canada, back and forth. Nope, not even a question. (laughs) This is highly unusual and speaks of higher authorities being involved. When Mr. Dufer traveled south from Canada, so he was in Canada, if he was just running away, being on escape, he wouldn't have wanted to go south towards the United States again. He would have like kept running in Canada, but no, he traveled south from Canada and crossed the border at Lyndon, Washington. On May 24th, 1979, the shooting of Kenneth Ward occurred. That's the victim, Kenneth Ward, Kenneth Gerald Ward by the name of Jerry. I do not believe Mr. Dufour was acting under his own volition when this shooting occurred. I believe this shooting was related to his training and subsequent activities. Details in his trial documents support this belief. So there, something about that, and I've said this before, is that... Um, They came, he and his wife, Marie Farabouf, they came down in their brown Chevy vega. So like at 8.30 at night with no luggage. And he was packing a a gun in in his back, um, in his belt. I think it was in his belt, in his pants, like in the back. And uh, he walked into the customs office, which is like a a police station. This guy who had all this training, he walks in there uh he knew what would happen if he walked in there with a gun a loaded gun so um i i don't think we can forget that part mr kenneth ward did not deserve to die that night by all accounts he was a good and honorable man and i believe this is true he uh he seems like he was he's a really good person but there are inconsistencies in the records regarding his shooting. The trial records and statements show Defer believed he only shot Mr. Ward twice. And he's also said that in email, that he shot him twice. But the ambulance staff, and this was in the records for the trial, the ambulance staff radioed into the hospital. It was St. Luke's Hospital. As they transported him, as they transported him to the hospital, that he had been shot four times. He'd been shot four times. This means two of the shots seemingly occurred after Dufer left the scene. Think about that. So. Issues have also come to light about why someone may have wanted Mr. Ward dead, and that Mr. Dufer was merely used as the only named shooter in the crime. Familiar? While others have walked free for 40 years. Two days prior to the May 24th, 1979 shooting, A ship from, and I said Colombia, but it's actually a ship from Panama, but it had been in Colombia, carrying millions of dollars of illegal drugs, silently came into a small port on Vancouver Island, near Sydney, Mm -hmm. Vancouver Island. In the middle of the night, law enforcement, who were aware of its pending arrival, surrounded the ship and took control of its cargo, arresting the crew. Research shows that special trucks had been arranged to transport these drugs to California across the U.S. border. This border is the very border Mr. Kenneth Ward was protecting. That night, the night of his murder, for some inexplicable reason, Mr. Ward was working alone. The other people just happened to not come to work that night. The facts point to Mr. Ward being an obstacle for the illegal transporting of these drugs across the border. He was not the type of agent to look away or not do his job. He was honorable. The shipment came in on May 22nd, 1979. The shooting of Ward occurred on May 24th, 1979. So two days apart. Who was the main witness in Mr. Defer's trial? A DEA, which is drug enforcement, right? Drug and alcohol agent who was off duty and for some reason just happened to be sitting outside the custom house that night in Linden, Washington when Ward was shot. He normally worked in Blaine, Washington. Blaine, Washington's quite a ways away. I mean, it's not you know, a jillion miles, but it's it's a good ways away. But he just happened to be there, sitting outside the custom house. And he watched DeFer walk in there with the gun. He watched him walk in there. He watched uh, Ward take him in there. And just a week earlier, he had requested to transfer to Denver, Colorado after the shooting. No, sorry. After the shooting, his position in Denver was defunded, but he still had to move. So he had uh, made a request to move to to Denver, that agent, to have it occur right after that shooting. But then it was defunded, but he still had to move. And I got that information from a... It said um, this this is in a court document where he sued his employer... Um, regarding the the lack of uh, funding for that position. and um, it's just really it's really weird just a second. So I have that information. Um, and it's in the three articles. You'll see that his name, his name, sorry, my mouth is a gene. His name starts with an M. Um, I'll just let you look it up on the on those articles. You can look it up for yourself to find out what his name was. I interviewed him um, about a month ago. And um, he told me to call Brian Rockham and then... Um, I didn't really say anything about that because I, Brian Rockham, I'll talk, well, I'll say that, you'll see who he is in a minute, but, um, and he gave me his phone number. So, think about that as I read the next part. The DEA agent was also involved um, in the drug shipment investigation. I said drug shipment, but I meant investigation. Another agent, Brian Rockham, who made sure he was the first to speak to deferred upon capture, was also aware of the drug shipment. And that's, um, that's the man that uh, that DEA agent told me to call and gave me his phone number about a month ago. And I didn't call him. Mr. Rockham and the former DEA agent are still close allies and live near each other. It is Mr. Rockham who organized members of his fraternity of officers the Department of Homeland Security, Customs people, to appear illegally at Mr. Defer's last parole hearing via video conferencing and to write letters to oppose his release. And really, they weren't supposed to. Um, It's only supposed to be for, like, victims. They're not victims. They may even... well, anyway. The former DEA agent described above has put himself in the position of chronicling these events in a series of articles for a history website. And you can uh, look up look up that, it's a Seattle history website. You can find it. In one article, he incorrectly states the date of the shooting as April 24th, 1979. This is one month earlier than it, than it actually occurred. He would know the correct date as he was there and he was a major witness at the trial. The reason to report this date wrongly to the public is to separate the date of the shooting of Ward from the date of the capture of the drug shipment, to confuse the public and obscure the facts and to pr- and to protect those who may have been involved in illegally transporting the shipment worth millions of dollars, it was actually billions of dollars, I learned later, um, across the US border. A reporter from the Seattle Times who attended the trial of Dufer also did the same thing over 10 times in 10, 10 articles. It was no mistake. Luckily, a person at the Seattle Times, another reporter or staff was ethical and in an editorial, an unnamed editorial, not an op-ed, not like someone sent in from the public, um, linked the two events together in time. And I'm attaching that editorial. Sorry. Okay. So, um, okay. It's my opinion Mr. Dufour was a victim from the age of 14 because of his being targeted and trained and utilized in illegal activities undertaken by those under the color of the law, acting under the color of the law And the U.S. military. Mr. Dufer committed crimes but he was not in a reasonable state of mind when he did so and he was intentionally put into this state by these individuals acting illegally. His trainer and those who encouraged those kinds of targeting, that kind of targeting and training Defer is the only one who has paid for his crimes by serving his entire adult life from the age of 18 in prison. And when he was out on escape, it is clear he was further utilized by these same actors. And because of the, um, he had described some uh, work he had to do in Spain when he was out on escape. And I think we can, we might be able to consider this border incident also more work. Maybe. I don't know. Looks to me like it. Mr. Dufer is now 64 years old. He's a human being who was a talented athlete as a kid. They always pick the talented ones. They... Um, the research shows that they, um, they screen kids' public schools looking for certain kinds of kids, talented kids in poverty, he, or troubled ones, talented or troubled, they say. He could have lived a long and productive and happy life on the outside had he not been targeted and trained by those acting under the color of military authority and law. He has paid dearly and he has paid enough, as has as have his victims. Mr. Dufer only wants his remaining years to be peaceful and reflective. He has developed strong skills as an artist and has the ability to develop a career with his work. He loves nature and he loved which he loved before his training. No man can live in federal prison for 40 years and not desire to live peacefully if released. I believe his time isolated from his training and trainer have allowed him to return to the self he was prior to their influence. Every human being deserves to heal. Sadly, his victims have lost that opportunity to heal in life, but we have an obligation to help those who live alongside us who seek to heal, to have that opportunity and to live outside of an institution where the environment is military-like. Mr. Dufer Mr. deserves time to live outside of military influences, as do all soldiers. Mr. Dufer is in many ways a former soldier. He deserves to be free. He's trained by Soldiers to be a soldier. He was given jobs to do by soldiers. And he killed people as a soldier, an undocumented soldier, an underage soldier, when he was trained. So, Mr. Defer, in many ways, is a former soldier, and he deserves to be free. And certainly, the opposition to his legal release, he legally has the right to be released, should be questioned. As it appears, it is very likely self serving to cover up their own wrongdoing regarding the shipment of the drugs across the border and clearly not in support of Kenneth Ward, the victim. In fact, he may also be their victim. Sincerely, Marta Lyle. Former professor at Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Washington Media Artist with a history of exhibitions in museums and cultural centers in Japan Europe and the US Seattle telephone number so anyway that's that's my letter that I wrote and um, uh, what happened was he had his hearing on um, I told him I, I told him that I wrote that letter I didn't I can't tell him couldn't tell him what it was or share it with him before the hearing you're not supposed to do that but I told him that I had written a letter, and um, he got really worried about it, um, what what I had said, you know. And, but he, he couldn't ask directly. I would given a copy of it to his legal helper, so his legal helper knew um, before the hearing. So if his legal helper thought it was really going to create a problem or something, he could have um, said something to me. Um, but he didn't say anything. So anyway, so um, the day came. It uh, turned out that the hearing that the um, already found out that the parole commission was going to be there all week, and that the hearing didn't occur until Friday. Now I don't know if that's true or not. If they ch- or if they changed the hearing date after my uh, after my letter, so that they could have their little people come in and make some statements, maybe make statements about my, my uh, credibility or something, I don't know. But um, um, I don't know, I don't know how that worked out. But anyway, the um, uh, the hearing was on Friday morning, I guess. I got a really brief email back from Marty, uh, which just said that um, law enforcement was on video again and that the pro commissioner made it clear, that they were gonna support the police no matter what, and um, they were never gonna let him, Artie's words, they were never gonna let him free, and they wanted him to die in prison. And I I, I have no reason to doubt that that's how it came across. I don't, I asked Artie if it was, um, sorry, (laughs) I asked Artie if it was, uh, if that was the final rendering of judgment, if there was uh, gonna be something in writing, because I, felt that there probably was going to be, that this was not really, the hearing wasn't the place where they do the final judgment. And he said that um, in about three weeks, he'll get a a letter with a decision, but he believes the decision will be, um, you know, as they stated at the hearing. But I don't know, you know, um, they are human beings, and um, being human beings, they... They can be open to making um, choices from their heart if they want, and they can listen to truth if they want. Um, So um, we don't know. Maybe the letter will be different than what came across in the hearing. Maybe the hearing was theater, in a sense, for certain people or for the public or, um, I, I'm still haven't already said he'll get me a copy of the, of the uh, hearings, but I don't know if he, I mean, he's supposed to be able to do that, but I don't know. I don't know how that will work. From my experience with the Pearl Commission, they don't want me to have anything. So, um, so I don't know. Um, So I have been trying to send good thoughts to the the commission, the commissioners, that um, that they not act out of their own suffering. I ha- have read many places, but I I know from experience too that. Um- The way people act is often because um, they're projecting their own pain and suffering out onto someone else. And so in this case, you know, the the fact that they want to keep this man, who was just a kid, who's lived his whole life in under military control, basically, um, who has shown, that he would not hurt anybody, and um, who had his life taken away from him. Who represents a lot of other kids, symbolically, really, of, of things that are going on now. And um, they want to, they want to, and the police if those same law enforcement, I shouldn't say police, it's really the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, if they were involved in wanting Kenneth Ward dead, so they could transport that money across, the that basically money, the drugs across the border for money. And it's very possible, isn't it? That's what, Gary Webb was investigating around the same time. They, The uh, government agencies were um, getting, this was a Colombian, that's why I said that the ship was Colombian. It was a Colombian drug lord's uh, money, or drugs. He was supposed to get the money, worth billions of dollars, cocaine and marijuana. Similarly, uh, what had happened um, that Gary Webb had looked into were that um, billions of dollars of drugs were coming across the California border. And um, this uh, Kenneth Ward, this border agent, he had worked on that California border earlier, about the same time as the Gary Webb story. Information came up, you know, about that, when those events happened. So the, um, I mean, at that time, our government, was using drug money to fund counterinsurgency activities. So it's not that hard, it's not that much of a leap of faith, really, to, or a leap of judgment, to go from the incidents in California to the ones in Canada. And the one in Canada, the one I'm talking about, Nobody really knows, talks about it. No one knows about it. And um, no one's looked into it. So read the articles. I, I put the article in about the drug investigation. Um, this May 22nd. And you'll see. Um, I also put an article um, in as an exhibit that shows that the shooting of Kenneth Ward was May 24th. Because there's just multiple articles that say it was April 24th which is just absurd it's just as absurd as the um, the U.S. archives trying to destroy his trial records when I tried to get them saying that there was no trial when the guy's in prison there's a trial <laughs> got tons of articles oh. so It isn't to, my interest in following this and to a conclusion, is not to hold anyone accountable who's done wrong, like those in law enforcement or in government. Although government's not supposed to do this kind of thing. They're not supposed to do these kinds of things. And it's, um, it, it damages us. And it damages us to have them harming people who look into it too. That's not right. But, um, but what's most important is that there's some resolution within our courts and our law enforcement and the parole commission to start doing the right thing to not back murderers who wear uniforms, um, to not back drug dealers who wear uniforms, just because there's money involved, just because that money is useful or wanted, we're supposed to not support that. And you shouldn't use a 14-year-old kid and take his life away money you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do it now with other kids so my dad was right about that you know and so is Carl Carl Harp and other people who may look into this after me I hope that um I hope that you're strong and I hope that, I hope that people, um, American people and people outside the US will see and will support um, the investigation of this. And ma- mainstream media has been complicit and they put in those wrong dates for that shooting, Seattle Times, and I called the Seattle Times about that and that reporter who did that is still living, and he didn't want to talk to me. And um, the the, other, the Seattle Times, one of the editors, he looked it up in, his, in their database, and he said, yeah, I, I see that. He saw that the wrong date. So he can't really say it's a mistake. And we um, really shouldn't have done that either. We really shouldn't have our media doing things like that. Anyway. Okay. (laughs) Wish me luck. And um, send good thoughts for Artie, strength and healing thoughts, and for his freedom. If you want to send letters to um, the U.S. Parole Commission in Washington, D.C., you can look it up on the web. There's a there's a web. There's a. I, I would send it to James Backus, James E. Backus. You can call the commission and ask for his email address, or if you want to contact me, I can give it to you. I have it to send letters to um, support his release. And um, I. I think he. I think he's an important figure in history, and that if he was released, he could talk more. He can't talk very much now. And that's one of the reasons to keep him in prison. If we let him out, maybe he could talk more.